so we're t- talking today about the actual election and predestination. And does God actually send specific individuals to, to hell without their say, without any uh, accountability for their, you know, their ability to respond to his uh, actions or to his commands? And um, uh, how does you know, this display God's justice and mercy as a sovereign God if uh, he's not given the person the ability to become holy? Unless God chooses him, okay? So, I'm just going to go through. Um, there's terminology that you see when you discuss this topic. Sovereignty of God, free will, election, predestination, foreknowledge, and so forth. And um, we try to stay away from that because it's, it's so cloudy. And we don't want to talk about it. And therefore, we perhaps are less equipped to talk about it when we, when we talk to other people. Um, words that are not in the Bible... So anytime you talk to a Calvinist and he brings up these terms, go back to the scripture. Okay, say, where does that say in scripture? For example, inner call. There's no inner call. It doesn't say there's an inner call. It says a call, right? Uh, effectual call. Uh, there's no term called effectual call. There may be a concept, but it becomes effectual when you respond, right? Hidden counsel concerning predestination, haven't seen it. And the mystery that I talked about this morning was really the mystery of God electing the Gentiles into his commonwealth. So what did the early church believe on election and predestination? For the most part, for the first 350 years, for the most part, and I can't think of anything else, I haven't come across any other one, the early church believed that God made man accountable for his actions and also gave man the free will to choose and to follow God through cooperation with his grace. God, in his foreknowledge, elected those individuals who would respond to his grace and predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. The early church also believed that a true believer could fall away and lose his salvation. This was across the board, okay? So what happened in 350 years, you know? Um, I'm just giving you the names of these people that wrote on topics such as election, predestination. Synergism means cooperation, God co-op- or man cooperating with God. Uh, foreknowledge and free will. All these people wrote about them and it's very clear what they, where they cited. It wasn't until Augustine of Hippo uh, came along, had a different view, and uh, one thing that we need to know about Augustine, he was converted to Christianity from a Gnostic cult called the, the Manichaeans. And the Gnostics, as you know, were very fatalistic. and They had weird understandings of uh, creation. Uh, they had a dual understanding of there's, uh, you know, the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. Um, that's where you get a lot of these uh, things in, in the letters of John that we talked about um, uh, the Antichrist and those that don't believe Jesus came in the flesh from the Gnostics. They're not agnostic. They're just Gnostic. Okay. Gnostic comes from the word Gnosis and they were the ones that believed you had to have this special revealed knowledge to, to attain salvation. And God only gave it to certain individuals, by the way. <laughs> so... Augustine believed that a small percentage, you know, because God wanted to display his mercy and justice, he only chose a small percentage of the world to show his justice by giving them uh, mercy and the rest he damned to hell. That's how he would manifest. He's God. He can do what he wants. Um, He believed faith is a gift of God and is not generated within man. And every good work and every good will is the work of man, work of God in man. He had a different belief uh, in the first... um, 
Uh, 17 years or so of his ministry, or, or was it 12? I forget. Now, his first 12 or so of his writings, he believed like the early church. He believed like the early church. And then after 417 AD, he began to go to the other side and started believing in this uh, election and predestination in, in the form of predeterminism. So if I were to ask a question here, who believes in predestination? Who would raise their hands? I hope we all believe in predestination. <laughs> who believes that they're chosen? I believe. The question is, what do you mean by that? Okay. So don't be afraid of raising your hand if, you, if you're a Christian that you believe you're chosen. Okay. Yes? Uh, I have a listing of it. I can't remember, but I think it was before. And the reason is, and I'm going to go through that, so I'm going to go through his, the way he thought, okay? By the way, Augustine also believed in purgatory. He, 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 for the Catholic Church, wrote up this big document on purgatory to explain what happens if you're your child or your father goes to hell and then or, or doesn't repent before dying, and then what? You've lost him forever. So they, this is what I mean by logic, okay? They have to fill in the gaps. So they, they made up purgatory to say, oh, they can go back to heaven, but they have to suffer 100,000 years in purgatory before they can go back to heaven. It's not in the Bible. So Augustine, he, he's, he's one day, he sees himself uh, picking pears with his friends. He's stealing it from somebody's backyard. And, and he says, wow, I just did that. I wouldn't have done that if I was by myself. But I couldn't give in to the peer pressure. And then he thought about everything else about his life. He was very promiscuous. He was very much into, uh, you know, uh, womanizing and so forth. Until God, he heard a voice, you know, pick up and read. His mother was a Christian, pick up and read. And he picked up Romans 13. And that, when it's, you know, he, he got struck by the word of God. But until then, he was very promiscuous. And then he said to himself, I can't fathom, I can't understand that when you do... Um, you, you have this bad behavior, these bad thoughts, you, have, you, you give into peer pressure. It's impossible for man to be good unless God intervenes and gives you his grace. So that's where it started off, okay? Um, and then along comes Pelagius. I didn't realize this, but he came from Britain. He was like a Celtic monk, okay? He comes from Britain, and he sees what, um, what uh, uh, Augustine's saying, and he says, but if, if, if that's the case, um, then... You, you, you're not accountable for what you do. Because it's unless God actually gives you the grace, you have no, nothing but to do what's wrong. So I don't understand what you're saying. That means you're making God accountable for your salvation. And it says, how can, how can, how can that happen? Well, um, Augustine believed that grace is active. Okay, Grace is active. It's, it's acting on you. It's not passive. Something that, that just you happen to get information from in order to become better. But God, it's like a power that God gives you. And sin is a disease. So this grace that God gives you is like medicine to apply to your disease of sin, and that's how you can be cured. And unless God gives you this medicine, you can't be healed. So um, how then does God determine who he will give this grace to? This is what Pelagius says. And uh, uh, Augustine's response was, well... God alone, in his wisdom and you know, hidden counsel, I'm not sure if he used that word, but that's what Calvin used, uh, uh, God alone will initiate this salvation and complete it. And it's just up to him to do it. So you have no choice. Okay? So it's all within God's sovereign choice, in other words, election, 
as to whom he will give this grace to. Now, Pelagius was then accused as a heretic. He was, he was tried three times. The first time he got off. The second time uh, he was accused at another synod or council. And then in about 431 AD at the, at the Council of Ephesus, him and his friend were actually called heretics and excommunicated uh, because, well, he was dead by now, but for the church, they declared him a heretic in 431 because he was opposed to infant baptisms. Augustine believed that man had original sin and in order for him to go to heaven, he must be baptized. So if a baby dies before they're baptized, they go to hell. So that's why Augustine and the early church says, You've got to baptize babies. And um, uh, Pelagius was opposed to it, and so he was declared a heretic. Okay. Um, Augustine then gets some, after this is all gone, uh, along comes a man called John Cassian. He says, okay. Um, he says, if you say that God only gives his grace to um, the elect, then this grace must be non-irresistible. Because if God elected you, okay, if God chose you to be saved, then the grace that he gives you, you have no power against it. You can't say no because he's chosen you. That leads to irresistible grace. And he couldn't buy that either. He said, we can reject God's grace because we can see it happen. I mean, it's in scripture, you know, and we'll come across verses where it talks about how people reject God's grace. So... He, he then says to Augustine, well, if it's God's grace, it's not that God forces you to do something. It's not that God makes you do it, but that you cooperate with his grace. Okay? Now we're getting closer to what we're believing today. So you cooperate with his grace. It's not that he forces you. Cassian could, could agree with that, but he couldn't agree that it was against your will. You had nothing to do with it. You have to cooperate with it. So... That makes it possible for the human will then, Augustine says. If you're telling me that we cooperate, Augustine says then, well, that makes it that you are the one that initiates salvation. And he says, no. God initiates and we follow. That's cooperation. Okay. So the debate, by the way, Cassian was not declared a heretic. He was closer to, because he accepted most of the stuff that Augustine was bringing up. But the debate continued they both died, and about 529 AD, they had another council, Council of Orange, in which um, all of Augustine's were, points were agreed to, except for election and predestination. So Augustine brings in predestination, predetermined election and predestination, and they accepted it for about 100 years or so, and then at 529, they, re they looked this over again, and they said no. We, we can't accept this predetermined salvation and predetermined reprobation. Okay? I'm sort of leading you up. So this is what they came up with um, in, in that council. What came up here was this cooperative grace they called prevenient grace. I don't know if you heard of that, prevenient. The Wesleyans were known for this. Wesley used that term a lot. And what it says is, okay, they all agreed that man was born corrupt because he was born into Adam's family. He, was, he inherited his, his sinful nature. And they all agreed that they can't do anything without God's grace. And then they said, well, God gives grace to everyone. God gives enough grace to enable you to make a choice. Okay? Everyone get that? 
They give you, God gives you enough grace to enable you to make a choice, but you still have a free choice. So now we're down to what I think we, for the most part, believe that God enables us to make that choice. Okay? doesn't mean the grace it gives you converts you and forces you and regenerates you, but it now gives you the freedom to make that choice. So it's still all from God. Okay? And because I think one of the underlying principles here is that if God forces us to love him, then is that love? If I force somebody to love me, if I chain them down to the house and I utter threats, this is not God, but, but this is forced love. If you don't love somebody because of who he is, is it true love? Okay. So a thousand years later, the only other person that mentioned um, a bit of this was Thomas Aquinas. But he did believe in God's sovereignty, as Augustine said, but he also believed in man's free will, the freedom to choose. So you have Martin Luther. He comes in. The debate continues. He comes in around the turn of the 15th century because he was responding to Erasmus, a very prominent writer, scholar, uh, because Erasmus wrote this book on free will, and uh, he he, um, responds to Erasmus, and, and he writes a book called The Bondage of the Will. And some of the stuff that he says, he said, I cannot understand this monstrous uh, 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 picture of God that he forces, that, that he will only choose some and then consign others to hell. I cannot understand it. And I struggle with it. And then finally I accepted it. This is Martin Luther. Um, Calvin, on the other hand, was in uh, Switzerland while Martin Luther was in Germany. And uh, he comes sometime later and he picks up Augustine's writings and he writes his own position on election and predestination in the Christian Institutes or Institutes of Christian Religion. So in there he spells out very clearly what he believes. This is what Calvin said. By predestination we mean the eternal degree of God by which he determined with himself whatever we, he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms. So he's now saying that not everybody is created equal. Okay? God was preferential in how he created people. He was a respecter of persons, in other words. But some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or to death. Now, that statement is not found in the Bible. You will not find God predestinating anyone to life or to death. We're going to get into that. This is his logic. This is what I talked about this morning in the morning sermon, uh, in the morning's forum, uh, how someone said, uh, what makes Calvinism so attractive? Well, Calvin states, and the apostle most distinctly testifies and that death passed from all, upon all men, for all have sinned. That is, they are involved in original sin and polluted by its stain. Hence, in infants, bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's womb, Suffer not for another's, but for their own defect. So babies in your stomach, in your womb, are suffering for their evil. But we just finished reading in Romans 9, was it 13, that the babies before they were born, Esau and Jacob, having not done evil or good, right? So here's Calvin saying, there's something, there must be something wrong. Because if God would send them to hell, something's got to be wrong. What is it? It says... Even though they haven't produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness, they have the seed implanted in them, the seed of sin. And their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin and therefore cannot be but odious and abominable to God. So God is it's abominable that kids were born in the womb with this, with this nature. And now I know that 
Many Reformed churches don't believe that anymore. They, but, but what I'm saying, this is where logic gets you to. Okay? And for that reason, uh, Augustine's logic of, you know, if, if your uncle dies without Christ, what's going to happen then? Was, well, let's, let's invent purgatory. That would be a good fix. And that's what he did. Commissioned by the Catholic Church. So, at the Synod of Dordrecht, for short, Dort, the followers of Arminius, who was a student of uh, Beza, who was Calvin's uh, son-in-law, uh, he started studying Calvinism under Beza. And as he was studying, he began to have these questions. And he said, no, I can't accept that. And then the followers of, of, of Arminius, uh, they came up with five points to counter Calvin's teachings. And then at this synod of Dort, the, the Calvinist followers came up with a, with a response. And the response can be formulated by this total uh, depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. The acronym is TULIP. Okay? So now we talk about God's sovereignty. <coughs> Somebody's definition is God, if God is so sovereign, he can tell you, you're going to be saved, you're not. Is that what he means by sovereignty? It does not mean that God controls every thought and action of man. God still gives us freedom of will and so forth. God will not exercise his sovereignty in any way that will be inconsistent with his character as portrayed in his word. So when God gives us his word, his Old Testament, his New Testament, and we read all these qualities and, and, and virtues and, uh, and character of God, we say, this is what God wants us to be like, and this is what he's like. And then you come up with this other image which says God is not going to give you a chance. Whether you like it or not, you're created to be destroyed. That's the bottom line. No matter how they paint it, that's the bottom line. You were born and you're not going to have a chance at salvation. So, sovereignty, I'm just giving you all these verses. Uh, you can pick up the, the, the presentation on the, on, the, on the MP3 disc. But I'm, not got, I'm just giving you so many scriptures. We cannot deny the sovereignty of God. We believe that. But how is that defined? So what is the character of God like? It's loving. He's sovereign. Rules over all. Holy, merciful, kind, forgiving, long-suffering, omnipresent, omniscient. He's light. He's truth. He's righteous. He's just. He's not a respecter of persons. All of these. And he's, he spells out some of these traits in Exodus 34 when, when he passed by Moses. So, the sovereignty of God and free will, some portray God, such as Calvin, as he has to execute his sovereignty without our free will. He ties our hands, we can't do anything, and I'm going to show you how sovereign I am. Right? On the other hand, I believe the God of the Bible says, I'm going to give you freedom. And with that freedom, I'm still going to show you how sovereign I am. To me, that's a bigger God than the other God. I'm going to give you free will and I'm going to show you how sovereign I am because you're going to respond to me not because you have to, because you want to. So, let's talk about election. Election is nothing but choice. Don't be afraid of terms. Feel free to talk about these terms. We, we can use being chosen today. You know, you can choose, talk about election or chosen. Same thing, choice, right? Um, Election is the act whereby God chose men and women out of the human race for his own good and purposes. Election, first of all, is centered in Christ. Christ is his elect. If you read Isaiah, he says, Christ is mine elect. So first Christ was chosen, right? And then we are chosen in him. And I believe that election is primarily, when he's talking about election in Ephesians and Peter and Thessalonians, he's talking about God has chosen for himself a people. That's what we call corporate. That's where you get the word corpus from, body, right? A people. 
And secondarily, it's, it's individual, but on the condition that you are in that body. Okay. Christ is the elect, as I mentioned. Uh, Calvin believed, at, when Calvin started off his, his career, whatever you want to call it, he believed that that's what he was talking about. He was talking about corporate election. And some of these verses point to that. The early church believed in that. Clement of Rome, he, he rubbed shoulders with Peter and Paul. And he believed in, just as we believe today, that it's corporate election. Uh, God does not consign anyone to death against their will and so forth. Um, and election was purposed before creation. So that's another thing we have to understand or believe that God chose to do this before we were born. Okay? God has chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the world was made. And that what did He choose us to be? Holy and unblameable. In Ephesians 1.5 it says, He has predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to His good pleasure. So we have two things in here. We've chosen and we've predestinated. And they're not the same thing. People mix that up all the time. Oh, I've been predestinated. I've been... They're two different things. And we'll try to get explained to that. So, first of all, it's in him through his blood. We, we are grounded. Our election is grounded in the sacrificial death of Christ. And Ephesians 1 and Romans 3.25 speak about that. And then it's primarily corporate, as I said. Therefore, election is corporate. It embraces individual persons only as they identify themselves in Christ. Okay? Individual election, you can say, yes, I was elected individually, but only as I come into Christ. But the main thrust of election, I believe, is, is that God, he, he had definitely elected a body, a people. And, and you'll see that how that comes out in the Old Testament and the New. And Christ is the head of that body, and he's the church. So, election of the individual men cannot be isolated from the church. You're not saved outside the church. You're saved in the church. The mother which is above is the mother of us all, right? Zion says that she's the mother of us all in Galatians. We are in the, in the body. Uh, so I'm just giving you some other scholars' views because one thing, one big complaint is that, if I can use the term Armenians, there's not a lot of Armenian preachers that, be, that, that believe that, you know, uh, like Armenius did, uh, that, that, that preach a lot of this stuff. You know, they preach about predestination, election. But there's a lot of preachers that preach on predestination, election, and, and so forth, as Calvin would understand it to some degree, or Augustine would understand it. So there's some, um, you know, why isn't there more people doing that? Maybe they don't think it needs to be defended. But some of these scholars, there are many scholars out there, they can put up just a good, as good as argument, as a better argument, if I would say, than, than you would hear on the, on, on the radio. Christ is the elect, and in God's real kingdom, in the absolute sense, so that all of his followers are chosen with him as organic members according to their organic relations. Another quote, election relates not merely to individuals, but to the entire body, and accordingly to individuals as members of the body. Karl Barth, he was a famous Swiss theologian, and he was a Calvinist, a very mild Calvinist, but he didn't agree with this predestination and election as they were teaching. He points out that in the first edition of the Institutes, Calvin actually referred election as primarily corporate, but changed decisively through the years. And he says, an elect man is in any case elect in and with the community of Christ. 
Thus, every election of individuals is an election in a sphere of the community on the basis of the fact that this sphere is both established and marked out in the election of Jesus. Again. So, there, was, there is one um, uh, thing that we need to note here. In, in the TULIP acronym, the last letter is P, and it's perseverance of the saints. So, one thing that we have to understand is that corporate is election is supported by the fact that there are many scriptures that bear witness to actual instances of people falling away that were elected, that were chosen, that were saved. And these abound with solemn warnings against it. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 John 5, right? And, and, and these solemn warnings are abounding, which to the, the assumptions are, are they just, um, they're hypothetical. But the only way you can get someone falling away with election, if it's corporate. Does everyone understand that? If you have a people that have been elected, then if you fall outside of Christ, you can fall away. But the people are still elected. And you'll see that with uh, uh, scriptures such as we talked about this morning. Romans chapter 11 says, Israel was elected. Now they've been cut off. You be careful, Gentiles, that you don't be so high-minded because you'll be cut off. And then when Israel believes, we'll graft them back into the natural olive trees. How can you get election, rejection, election, rejection, unless it's corporate? I think it's a very, very profound point. So, what is God's eternal purpose? This is where predestination comes in. Election is being chosen into the body of Jesus Christ. Now, once you're there, where do you go? Okay, where do you go? Where has God, what path has God given you? Now that you are in his body. And he, uh, Ephesians 1.4 says the eternal purpose is that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. That we should be sanctified. And in other terms, uh, in, verse, in Colossians 1, says that we should be holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Again, the same thing, uh, fulfillment of his purpose for the corporate church is certain. Christ will present himself as a glorious Church, holy and blameless. Uh, Second Titus one nine. Even they're not using election, uh, election and predestination here, but the, but the meaning is the same. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. You see, he's using similar language, but he's not using election and predestination. So to pre predestinate means. Uh, the word comes from pro orizo. So you get the word horizon, I believe. Horizon is like a limit. So it comes that you are limited in advance somehow. Okay? The, God puts sort of limits around you. Uh, the real meaning that comes out of that is God, God do, uh, determines before, ordains, and the word used here is predestinate. Uh, predestination means to decide beforehand or ordain, and the scripture, it applies to God's purposes comprehended in election. Predestination is God's act of determining the path or the destination and purposes of God's people. So there are six verses in all of the New Testament in which this word is found. And only two of them speak to the actual what is that, what is predestination, what does it entail. And one's in Romans 8.29, you have become, he has predestinated you to become his adopted sons. So he has predestinated you to the adoption of sons. And Ephesians 1.5 says he's predestinated you 
to be conformed to the image... Sorry, that's reversed. I, I, they're reversed. Romans 8.29 says... I, 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 I caught that before, but I, I didn't uh, change it. So Romans 8.29 says, He's conformed you to the image of, his, uh, of Christ, and, and Ephesians 1.5, to be adopted sons. Calvin said, you are predestinated to life or death. There's no such scripture. So when someone tells you that, say, Where, show me that in the Bible. They can't. Okay. Predestination is also corporate. As I said, just like election, you are predestinated because you are in this body. It's like um, you're saying, there is this, this, this ship that is sailing to the promised land. The destination of that ship is the promised land. Anyone that gets in the ship will go to the destination, unless you decide to jump out. But you have to be in the ship. When you are in Christ, you're in the ship, and you are destined to glory. Okay. So election in the Old Testament was all, was all corporate. I went through that this morning. God takes the people for you. A people, a holy nation, a kingdom, kingdom of priests, a, a holy people, a special people. God was, was, was electing a people for himself. And the same thing with Jacob and Esau, you know, the representative uh, heads of, of, of the nation. God chose the people of Israel in Abraham. He chose Jacob or Israel, right? It's all about uh, the covenant representative that represents a whole nation. That's what Romans 9 was talking about. Likewise in Christ, God chose us as believers in Christ. That is, by choosing Christ, the corporate and covenant representative, God also chose those people who are in him. That's key. The covenant representative on the one hand and the church on the other hand are the focus of the divine covenantal elections and individuals are elect only as members of the elect people. New Testament wording, same thing. They picked it out from the old covenant. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation. So um, I'm not going to continue on that. I hope I've given you enough scripture to, to show you that what was in Paul's mind when he was writing these letters, he was thinking about God's people. Now we come to this unbreakable chain in Romans. That's, that's, that's the fortress for, for many Calvinists. They say, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, not to, to go to heaven or hell, Conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. The first thing I want to say is that the whom in this scripture is plural. There's some saying that, well, the whom in Romans 9, there's singular Jacob and Esau. And I think I explained this morning, he's talking about the nation Jacob and Esau. But here, it's, if you look at whom, I think it's hos in Greek, it's plural. He's talking, he's talking to many, not to one. Okay. Secondly, remember that election is corporate and with certainty. People are chosen with certainty and individually they're conditional. Now, what is foreknowledge? Exactly what it says, prognosis. You go to the doctor, say, what's the prognosis, right? What do you see from what you have? What, what, what do you see now that's going to happen to me? It's... Uh, Foreknowledge in the scripture means that God purposed from eternity to love and redeem the human race through Christ. God was thinking about us. Uh, uh, the word forethought, you see that up there? It says forethought, foreknowledge. So he's thinking about us. Uh, foreknowledge is not predetermination. And I'll give you the example, uh, let's say World Cup for now. They had the World Cup on. People missed the last game, right? Brazil, uh, Germany won, <laughs> Germany won right, on, on a shootout, right? So somebody comes late home 
and he doesn't know who won. You know who won. The other person doesn't know who won. Right? And it's going to happen. Whatever happened, happened. The fact that you know doesn't change anything. So if God was to record, you know, uh, everything in his own mind, to know something ahead of time doesn't mean to predetermine. And there's a big confusion about that. Now, because he knows it, it will happen, but it doesn't mean that he makes it happen. There's a big difference. So there are several verses on foreknowledge. Four of them in, in the New Testament. One was not used, the first one, Romans 11, 2, was not used ahead of time. He says he knew this before. But the same Greek word is used. So, so what did God foreknow? So when we think about foreknowledge, oh, foreknowledge, foreknowledge. Well, what did he foreknow? Before the world was created, he foreknew that not only the elect, but the entire human race was on his mind. The entire human race was on God's mind. Not just the elect. God could see our human predicament, our conduct, a pitiful state. In his own eyes, God desired to have mankind saved from his misery. And he decided somehow how he would return them, how he would suddenly choose those that he wanted for his own. God also knew who would reject his plan, his salvation. When God predestinated a people for his purpose, it means that he had marked out beforehand or planned what he was going to do with them now after this selection. So God knew that mankind could not save himself. So he decided that he needed those that wanted to be saved needed to accept Christ. God would elect those to salvation who believed in Christ. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't know, this is where it's, we've got to be very careful that we pretend we know what's in the mind of God. Okay? We, have to, we, don't, we can't pretend that we know what God's thinking about. Okay? But we can only say... What does he teach us? Who he is? How should we act? And then we say, would God really do that? And then we can look at scripture through that filter and get, I believe, the correct interpretation. So God would elect those to salvation who believed in Christ. Being in Christ, God predestined them to the adoption of sons and to be conformed to the image of his, of his son. So, this morning, for those that weren't here, there's a verse that says that... Uh, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Some say, well, how can it be election if God knew who was going to be saved and then he chose them? Well, there's two things that happen here, right? First of all, God initiates salvation. He gives people grace to enable them to see this prevenient... I don't like to use prevenient grace. As much as I don't like people to say sovereign grace because it belongs to Calvin, I don't like to use prevenient grace because it belongs to Wesley, but what I just like to call it is grace. But I'm just to distinguish the two, I'm using prevenient here. So, according to election, might stand. Because he said, I'm not choosing you because you deserve it. And I'm not choosing you because, because uh, your father was a Christian. Or because you are a seed of Abraham. Okay? So it says that he used this term election so that it's not of works. And then what was the, what was the opposite of works? It wasn't election, it was faith. So you put the two together. And that's why it's conditional. God could foresee that someone chose good, but that's not why he chose them. Okay? God knows. I believe God chose a corporate, a body, and those that come into the body are his elect. So I went through that this morning about Jacob and Esau. If you want to hear the rest, uh, there's, a, there's a, a recording for that. Uh, I want to go into this, this uh, term called. Many are called, but few are chosen. Because in Romans 8.29 it says, for, for those who he... Uh, uh, predestined, he called 
And some people say that there's two calls. There's the outward call, there's the inward call. And only God's elect will respond to the inward call. Well, I challenge anyone to find anywhere in the Bible where it says there are two calls. And I'm going to prove that with at least three parables what Christ said. Matthew 21 and 22, when Christ called, God called the Jews in three different parables. He called the Jews. He invited them. That's what that word means in many respects. In other words, it means just a bid. Okay? But one was like a call out loud. But one said an invitation. He invited them. It must be understood that many are called, few are chosen. Why are they chosen? Because they believe. It's conditional. So, it must be understood that few are chosen. It is not only those who eventually would be conformed to the image of Christ that are called. Everyone's called. So we have three, three parables, as I mentioned. Two sons were called to work in the vineyard. Uh, the workers were called to work in the vineyard while the Lord was away. The king called the people to the marriage feast. Every single one, without question, were genuinely invited, sincerely called, and they refused. So this, this goes back to irresistible grace. Was God insincere when he called the Jews? No. All day long I've stretched forth my hands to again saying, again saying and, and a disobedient people. That's a real picture. That's true. Right? So we go into Tulip. Total depravity is really total inability, like I mentioned. You can't do anything because, you, you, like Augustine, you have no power. Right? Uh, and these are the verses that they quote, Romans 8. You have the carnal mind, it's enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's true, without his grace. I agree. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receives not the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness up to him, neither can they know them, and they are, uh, because they are spiritually discerned. That's true, without God's grace. Ephesians 2.1 You're spiritually dead. There's the analogy of the dead man. I remember talking to a young man before, he says, well, go ahead, I'm dead. Speak to me. Speak to me. Can't hear you. Can't hear I mean, that is a pretty poor analogy. Okay? You can't use that analogy. Because, first of all, dead man can't even think. Okay? So, we can't use that analogy. Um, and then, the verse uh, in John 6, 44, No man can come to the Father except, uh, come to me except the Father draw him, and I will raise him up. So, total depravity response. This is what I believe happens. I do believe that God enables everyone with his grace to respond. John 1.9 says, He was the true light, this is speaking about Jesus, which lights every man that comes into the world. In other words, he's given him enough information, enough knowledge, enough understanding for him to follow the little light that God has given him. Romans 1.19 talks about how people knew God. His creation knew him because he showed it unto them. They are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. You're accountable. I mean, it's, it's, to me it's clear as day that they have enough information to follow that little light that, that uh, God has given to them. And when they knew God, these same sinners, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So, the sequence, I believe... God will have all men to be saved, as it says in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. God will have all men to be saved. He desires them to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Acts 17, 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 
How much more absolute can you get with that? Hebrews 11.6 He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So God expects something from you. And it's not a work. Faith is not a work. Say, well, if you have to come to, if you have to uh, receive God's gift, it's a work. No. Romans 4 says, actually, he counters works with faith. So faith is not a work. Remember that. So I, I truly believe that God has given enough of his word and revelation to, that could, if we, if we follow that light, will humble us, will bring us down to really consider, what are you trying to say to me? Why is this happening? Why is, why is there so much evil around? I want to find out more. And so you see the examples in Psalms 51 and 34. Those that are of a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, broken heart, save us. he saves such as of a broken spirit. The son, when he came to himself, says, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Um, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So faith comes to us through God's grace. Augustine was right. God gives us grace. But I, I don't believe in the way that he just zaps you, and then all of a sudden you have this saving faith, you're regenerated, and then you, now you can believe because you are regenerated. But Romans 10 says how? Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay? So in other words, Jesus said in Matthew 7, he says, Seek, and you shall find. Knock, shall be opened unto you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. I believe it's a process that happens. Now this process doesn't take, they have to take three months or ten months. It could happen very quickly. Okay, so I believe you, God's grace is given through us humbling ourselves at his word. Uh, And I'm repeating these uh, verses. Peter and James say the same thing. God gives grace to the humble. So we go back to um, uh, John 6.44. Well, what does that mean? No one one comes to the Father except, uh, to me, except the Father draw him. See, he's he's dragging you. No. Remember, it says that There's enough information out there that when we knew God, we should glorify him as God. But some refused. So he that comes to God must believe. God then says, you're coming. You shouldn't be coming to me for this. Not now. You've got to go through my son. None comes to the father but by me. So when we come to God in repentance, God redirects us and says, you need to go to my son. That's what 644 means. And, he, and then he says in John 6.37, And all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and I will in no wise cast him out. You see, when you take that in that sequence and you take the whole scripture together, it makes a lot of sense. So um, the word that is used uh, by uh, many that, that claim this to be a Calvinistic verse, that uh, no man can come except the Father draw him, because the draw means here drag. When This is this ir- irresistible grace where I'm dragging you to me. You can't resist me. Well, the same word is used in John 12.32. It says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will drag, if you want to use that, all men unto me. But if all men are dragged to him, why aren't they all coming? You see, it's, 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 it's not a force, it's an influence. It's an enablement, and you need to make that choice. And it's not a work. Salvation is then not up to you. 
And many people confuse that. They say, well, if, you have, if, if, if the last action is that you have to receive it, it's your action, and therefore you have a part of that salvation. Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about logic now. It's nonsensical. Because faith is just the spiritual hand that receives the gift. If, if you were given a, a $10 million inheritance that you didn't work for, your uncle, old uncle died and gave you that money, and you've got to go to the lawyer's office to sign a document, and you get the $10 million, can you say then that you earned that money? No. It's a condition of salvation. It's not the ground of salvation. Faith is a condition of salvation. It's not the ground of salvation. And so we go into spiritually dead. How spiritually dead are we? To show you that God has given us some grace so we can make choices is Adam, after he fell immediately, could hear God in the garden. He wasn't this dead man that couldn't hear. He could hear his voice. Romans, again, they're without excuse. They knew God, but they refused to glorify him as God. Uh, Felix and Agrippa, right? Paul preaching to Felix and Agrippa. And when he's reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come... Felix trembled. He wasn't putting a show on. But you could see he was being pricked. He was being touched. And he could have kept going. But he wanted to do something else in his life. There were high priorities. Um, Grippa, King Agrippa, the same thing. Believe us are the prophets? I know you believe, Paul says. Well, if you go according to Romans 8, 7, the carnal man can't understand anything. He's dead. Well, why would Paul say to Agrippa, I know you believe? And if Paul understood predestination and election in that way. Why would he even tell Agrippa that? So there's a lot of, a lot of scriptures you've got to bring in to, to get the real meaning of what's behind it. God holds everyone accountable. And if he, if, he, if he commands something, then he expects you to have the ability to do it. Because it's not the nature and the character of God to command you to do something and then you know you can't do it. Because in his writings... Uh, in, his, in his ministry, Jesus said, which one of you that are fathers, if your child asks for a bread, will give him a, a stone? Or if asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's the mind of God. He's reasoning with you. He's not going to give you something that you can't comprehend, or you can't do, but he'll give you something that you can make a choice to do. And so we go, go through there again. Monogism, synergism, we talked about that. I believe that we are in cooperation with God because we can resist the grace of God. So, some people say for the same thing, well, you mean if you have to receive the gift, then you, you, you are actually doing a work. If it's up to you to accept the gift, faith, that kind of a faith is a work. But God says that, how shall they believe if they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You mean to say God's got to send preachers out so he can save you? Why can't he just do that? He's so sovereign. Why can't he just zap you right there? It's the way God works. This is not a work when a preacher goes out and a work on your, you can put to your account to receive the gospel. It's all God's work. We're co-laborers together with God, 1 Corinthians 3 says. So it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, the, the Calvinist was told, oh, there's something behind there. You've got to, you, you, you forget what he had determined already in, 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 in uh, eternity past. He's already, he's just going through the motions. Like God regenerated him, and then because he believes, he's saved. That's not the message of the tenure of the whole scripture for the reasons I've already given. Um, so, unconditional election. 
This is the one where we, are un- we have no say in it. God has already determined this. You are chosen, you are not. You are chosen, you are not. So does God really send specific individuals to eternal to- torment before they were even born without giving them an ability to see their sinful state and repent? How does this display his justice and mercy as a sovereign God for the purpose of glorifying himself? The question is not how would a sovereign God dis- demonstrate his love? But rather, how would a loving God demonstrate his sovereignty? That's a, to me, it's a beautiful statement. How would a God that is called love, that is love, demonstrate his sovereignty? Would he do it in the way Calvin suggests? And you know, R.C. Sproul is a, is a, a famous uh, staunch Calvinist today. Very, very effective writer and, and theologian. But he said this one thing. He said, you know, Calvin and Augustine could be wrong. But he, he chooses to believe that way. Because Calvin was wrong in a few points, and that's why many have gone away from him. So on the very presuppositions that he'd made, he'd come to this conclusion. But even Sproul says he could be wrong. So Augustine developed his views to counter Pelagianism. And just because Augustine presented a view that countered an incorrect position doesn't mean his position was correct, you see. It's a false dilemma. Either this or that. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's middle ground, which where they came up with the Council of Orange in 529. So in unconditional election, verses that refuted, okay, that, that actually put it down, if God had determined who were the elect, why would Jesus have paid for the sins of false teachers? Second Peter 2.1. The more you look into the word of God, the more verses pop up and you can see them. Second Peter 2.1 says about these false teachers that they denied the Lord that bought them. Why would God buy them? Why would God offer his son as a ransom, why would he pay for their sins if he didn't want them to be saved? The thing with, uh, with Tulip, if you knock down any one of the, these, like dominoes, T-U-L-I-P, right? They're like dominoes. If you knock one of them down, they knock the others down. If, if you can prove from Scripture that the P doesn't hold, that you are unconditionally uh, secure, then that means you weren't elect to begin with, so you knock down the T, right? Total depravity. Or you knock down the U. Right, because U comes from T, and, and 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 L comes from T. So if you knock one of them down, you knock the others down. So the Lord bought these false teachers, right? And in Second Peter two three nine it says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. If He's not willing that any should perish and all should come to repentance, why does He just?" have unconditional election? Why did he choose some to be saved and some not to be saved? Romans 11.17, I've discussed that. Uh, elected and rejected. How can you have elected and rejected if they were elected before the foundation of the world? Uh, we went into that. We went into what Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them. Now, in unconditional election, they say, well, God didn't see anything in you, therefore he didn't choose you because what he saw in you. But you've got examples of Cornelius, right? Cornelius is, 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 um, receives this, this uh, uh, vision or an angel that comes to him and says, you know, uh, call for Peter. Peter's in, in, in Joppa. He gets this vision of, the, of the, uh, uh, the sheets coming down with all these animals, say, slay and eat. And, uh, but he said of Cornelius, your arms have come before God as a memorial. Was Cornelius converted then? I don't believe so. But he saw something that he was looking for the truth, the little light that God had given him, 
He says, I'm going to show you the truth now. And what about 1 Corinthians 1.26? He says, look among, look among you, brethren, how not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Well, does that then tell you that God is going to call the humble? I mean, you have to be called before you're justified, right? That's what Romans 8.29 says. So he does look around. And in, in Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, says God is always looking now. Is there any that are seeking him? So when you come to this knowledge of God, this, this knowledge that there is something out there, big, something mighty, why am I here, right? And you start following these things, God responds. Oh, the last verse, this is very important. And the base things of this world and things are dis- that are despised, God has chosen. So they are base and despised before he chooses them. They are not wise in his sight until after he chooses them. So he looks, he looks and he fo- and looks for them, who they are that really are seeking for more light. John ten eleven. Um, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Greater love has no man than this, right? Uh, this is what they use for limited atonement. You know, I give my life for my sheep. Not for anybody else's sheep, just my sheep. In other words, I've already determined who my sheep are. There's nothing in here that says, actually, uh, that actually points to election. You're just saying, I give my life for my sheep. Of course it's going to happen. They become his sheep after they come to him. But... If we look at these, you look at the other side to get the true picture. It says, have I any pleasure that the wicked should die and not that he should return from his ways? I've already gone through 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, right? Who will have all men to be saved, who gave himself a ransom for all, not for individuals, but for all. This is now leading into limited atonement, right? That's what we started. This is, a, this is the Ellen Tulip, right? 1 John 4.14 And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. 1 John 2.2 And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now this is where Calvinistic logic really comes in. Because what they're saying here is that the world here doesn't mean the world. I mean, this is how far it goes. And all doesn't mean all. There's a there's famous writer called Owens, and he says the world there is actually the world of the elect. See, you always have to put these extra words at the end. It's the world of the elect. Okay, you know I've got to tip my hat off to John MacArthur. He's a Calvinist. He he he's a very good preacher. But one thing that he does say, when I read John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I've got to believe it's the world. I've got to believe it's the world. And when you say the world here, then that means it's not unconditional election. or It's, it's not that God just focuses his mind on the unconditional elect. He wants everyone to be saved. So if that knocks that one down, it knocks the others down as well. That's why it's not consistent. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all. Hebrews, get this one. So some say, well, all doesn't mean all, all the time. It could be all without exception, all without distinction. But what about this one? That Christ, God should taste death for every man. Every focus is on, on the individual. Every. Every single. Right? Acts 17.30. 
he will um, judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given us assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. Oh, I missed the most important part. I didn't see the bold there for some reason. But he now commands all men everywhere. Which part of that don't we understand? All men everywhere. Well, now you're thinking like a Calvinist. <laughs> okay. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. So this morning that question was asked, why is it so appealing? Because there's a lot of intellectualization going on here. All doesn't really mean all here. I'll choose it when I want it to be all. Okay. Uh, another famous one is Romans 5, where it talks about uh, as many died, right? So shall he be a ransom for many. So he's not talking about all, he's just talking about many. But we all died. So many is just used there in a metaphorical or, should I say, a, some kind of a sweeping uh, a hyperbo hyperbolic statement, you know, or some kind of a metaphorical statement, figurative statement, which says many, many, right? But if many means the whole human race, which we know it is, it means all. I just went ahead of myself. Preach the gospel to every creature. Christ's command. Why would you preach the gospel to someone that wasn't elect? Uh, defense came of one. Judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification. Now what that means, it, just, it shows you again that because not all are saved, what it's saying is he made it available for every single man. And if he made it available, he's expecting men to seek it. Irresistible grace. They use perhaps verses like Lydia, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia on the river. See, it was the Lord that initiated it. Um, what about Stephen? If there was ever a verse that said that someone can resist the Holy Spirit, it's this one. Before they stoned him, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Which part of that don't we understand? Resistible grace. Matthew 22, 2-3. He sent forth his servants to call them. He invited them earnestly, sincerely. They would not come. Matthew 22, 8. They were not worthy which were bidden. Matthew twenty two fourteen. Many are called, but few are chosen. We've gone over that. Uh, irresistible grace again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have... Uh, you that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered your chick children together as a hen gathers the chickens, and you would not. I went through that this morning. I'm not going to repeat it. How, often, how long? All the day I've stretched my hands to, to beg you, to bid you to come, and you refused. You're disobedient. So I'm not going to keep going on that. The calling of the two sons, I've gone through that already. Uh, even the pu uh, publicans and harlots will go into the kingdom of God before the Jews that were invited. Uh, the vineyard, I went through that. So now we come to the last one, okay? The perseverance of the saints. This is the teaching because there are many uh, cases where the Bible talks about warnings that you could fall into apostasy. You could fall into sin and not come back. And so they say, well... What's going to keep you going is this doctrine that the called will persevere because of the same grace. Okay? All those that have been elected and therefore accepted this irresistible grace will persevere faithfully to the end of their lives. It is impossible for them to fall away and lose their salvation. If a Christian does fall away, he was never truly saved in the first place. This is just an outgrowth of unconditional election. You have to have that, otherwise this is going to fall. Okay. Now, mind you, um, I don't believe all Christians everywhere are just falling away. 
I don't believe that they all fall away in, in, in mass. But it certainly is a possibility from Scripture, and, and we'll show you the Scriptures that talk about that. So the, the verse that used, is used here is, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Well, the response is, eternal life is possessed only potentially. There's a, you know, John 17, 3 says, and this is life eternal, that we may know him, right? And the Father, him who said, he said, right? But um, it's true that it's a potential, but we don't really, we haven't got there yet. We haven't arrived there yet, right? That's what this persevering is all about, until we arrive. He that endures until the end will be saved. So eternal life, first of all, is only in the Son, according to 1 John 5.11 and the believer is by identification with Christ we have um, life in Christ should the identification with Christ be broken he would be severed this is where again this corporate um, individual election comes in if you are identifying with Christ you're safe but if you're not then, then what it says in John 15 2 and 6 he says if ye abide in me, and I in you, you're going to bring forth much fruit. But if you don't bring forth fruit, what's going to happen? I'm going to cut you off. So how else can you interpret the vine? This is a picture now. So you can talk about the dead man. Let's talk about the vine. This is the vine. He said, Christ said, I am the true vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, you're going to bring forth fruit. And then I'm going to prune you so you bring forth more fruit. But if you don't bring forth fruit, I'm going to cut you off. Now, how can you be cut off if you're not already on the vine? If you want to use logic, let's go all the way. right? So, he would be severed from his eternal life if he doesn't bring forth fruit, yet it would not alter the fact that he had once possessed it. It should also be noted that Adam possessed the potential for eternal life also until he sinned. Before that, before he fell. But he lost it in the fall. It is seen then that the loss of salvation does not contradict the words of eternal life. As was stated in John 28 and 29. John 3.36 teaches the converse is true. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. So it is true that as an unbeliever he shall not see life. If you're an unbeliever you won't see life. But if he becomes a believer he shall see life. So if the words shall not see life are not contradicted when an unbeliever becomes a believer and sees life, where is the contradiction then when it is said that a believer shall not perish, but if he becomes an unbeliever, he will perish? You've got you've to take it both ways. Okay? The fact is, a believer, as long as he remains a believer, shall not perish. And you'll see a lot of those conditional um, statements in Scripture. There's, here's another one. What shall separate us from the love of God? Response to Romans 8, 35 to 39. You know, it's a, shall persecution, shall peril, shall famine, shall that separate us from the love of God, right? The passage does not deal with the question of whether a saved person can be lost. It teaches that a person who is a child of God can never, at the same time, be separated from God's love. In other words, the believer is never to interpret hardship, because that's what he's talking about, all the way up to, to that passage, remember? 
all the hardship that they're going through, the groanings, the Spirit interceding for them, they're saved by hope, and all things work to the good to them that love God. You're going through all this hardship. You're groaning for the, for, to, to wit the redemption of your body. And then he comes in and he says, you know, you never interpret hardship as meaning that God does not love you. Instead, he should say with Paul, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Just as John 10, 28 and 29 the verses in Romans 8, 35 to 39 in no way contradict the viewpoint that if a believer turns away from God in a defiant, arrogant unbelief, that God will take him out of Christ. Will, will take him out of Christ. It doesn't con- contradict that. This means that if God has made an unconditional promise, it will forever remain an unconditional promise. Well, what was the promise, right? If you remain faithful, this will happen. On the other hand, if he has made a conditional promise, he will never change the condition of that promise. You get that? If God has made a conditional promise, he won't change the condition. If he says, if you endure until the end, this is going to happen. There's a condition, if you endure. He'll never change that condition. Paul uses this reasoning in Galatians 3, 15 to 18. The Abrahamic covenant that had already promised justification on the condition of faith could neither be set aside nor the condition changed when the law came. It says the law could not nullify the promise given to Abraham. Just because the law came, it could never nullify the promise given to Abraham. So if God gives you a promise of salvation, if you remain faithful, if you don't remain faithful, you're going to be cut off. The same thing can be said in the same way. Those that continue in faith, will God will perform his work in until the day of the Lord Jesus. Um, so we're going back to neither shall any man pluck them out. The believer's relationship with God is a personal one between him and God. Though all the powers of the universe were to combine against the believer, they could not take him away from God because if he's in this love relationship with God. Some would add, well, neither can a believer take himself out of Christ. Because they say, well, no one can pluck him out of your, his hand, but you can jump out of his hand if you want. Right? However, one, we, one thing we have to understand, if you're going to go on this logic, the believer never placed himself into the body of Christ. Who placed you into the body of Christ? God. God placed you into the body of Christ. It was upon him. your faith that the Holy Spirit placed the believer in Christ. And if the believer renounces his faith, God, not you, God will take you out. God will take you out. John 15, 2-6. There is no contradiction between no man can take us out of Christ and God the Father takes people out of Christ who turn from Christ in unbelief. And now you can explain all these uh, scriptures of apostasy. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Alexander and Hymenus have I delivered, right, to the devil, and so forth. Um, Hebrews 6, there is no question, and if people want to argue with this, then I'm just going to walk away. There's no question that the person in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 is a believer. And many, many Calvinists believe and accept that. They believe that the Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, 6 is talking about a believer. Now, one thing I learned, and I, I believe it's true, when it says he is seeing they crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, um, that could easily mean, you know when Paul says, uh, I am crucified unto the world, And the world is crucified unto me. It means I have detached myself. I have separated myself from the world. I have no relationship with the world anymore. That's what it means. So when it says that, seeing they crucify to themselves Christ 
afresh. They have cut themselves off from Christ. It's not that Christ has to re- be re-crucified to save you. That's never going to happen. It's an impossibility. But you have cut yourself off from Christ. You've separated yourself from Christ. And if you're not in the vine, you're dead. Simple. Hebrews 10, 32 says, in support of that, it says you are illuminated. So he's saying the same thing. Speaking to brethren, you are illuminated. You receive the light. So I'm, just, I'm not going to continue with that because I think I've said enough about that. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 to 29 says, For if we sin willfully, willfully here means, I believe, it, um, the sin there is not a one-time sin. It could be. But I think what he's talking about, if you, in the Greek, if you read it, it says, If you are sinning willfully after you have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, and a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation that shall devour their adversaries. Look what it says in verse 29. Oh, how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, he's talking to believers, and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he, the believer, was sanctified as an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. That's a believer. Uh, 1 John 5.16, he sees a brother. Don't say he's a false brother because there's a word behind it called false. John identifies him as a brother. If any, bro- if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. And he shall give him life. But there is a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for it. And he's not talking about unbelievers. You don't go around for unbelievers and praying for their sin that they've sinned. They've got a whole lot of other things to deal with in for one particular sin. He's talking about brothers. There is a sin unto death. So you could become spiritually dead. Now if you say, well, these are all warnings. They're just warnings and it's God's means. It's God's means of keeping the saint pure. Of keeping this, the saint saved until the Lord comes. Okay? I'm not going to go through the other ones because I think I've covered enough. But this is the f- first verse that I refer to about... Um, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away, right? If a man abide in me, he's cast forth as a branch and he's withered. And they uh, cut them off and cast them into the fire. Uh, so we're going back to the Calvinistic get around of all these warning passages. If the Calvinists get a, they try to get around all of these warning passages in the Bible and say that the warnings are there only as a means of keeping the believer saved, but the believer will not sin to the point of losing salvation. That's how he's like, it can't happen. He was elected, so he can't, he can't lose his salvation. So the problem with their argument is that the moment people become convinced that their doctrine of unconditional eternal security is correct, the warning passages immediately lose their value. If, if, you, if you firmly believe that you are elect and the elect can't lose their salvation, well, what's the warning passages? What, what, what are they warning me from? There's enough, there's enough scripture in there that says, you know, God says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not uh, forswear thyself. There's enough scripture in there. If you are in truly uh, uh, a child of God and love God, there's enough scripture in there to say, I have enough information to tell me that's not what God wants me to do. And the Holy Spirit is going to keep me saved. It's going to give me the grace. So what does this other information about, you know, these warnings, what, what other information is it going to give me if I already believe I'm saved? I think it's a very valid point. So how can there be any earnest warning to the believer who is sufficiently instructed to understand 
the warning is directed against something that can never happen. To accept Calvinism, I believe, is you portray God contrary to be loving, merciful, and just as the scripture clearly describes. Now, I'm not saying that God would not judge the world. He will. But he's going to give everyone a fair trial. I believe that. Because that's throughout his word. That's throughout the, his whole writings. God will give everyone a fair trial. He talked about justice. He talks about you are inexcusable, O man, in Romans 2. God will give everyone a fair trial. God makes man responsible for his own sinful state and actions, but does not give man the power, but does give man the, the power of choice and the power to repent or necessary grace to save him. But he needs to decide. To accept Calvinism, one must accept that all the warnings to the believers in falling away are only used as a means for ensuring eternal security of the believer, but they can actually never fall. Uh, to accept Calvinism means to attribute some verses which sp uh, plainly speak about the possibility of falling away to the unconverted. Uh, to attribute them just to, just to warnings, nothing else. Reject what the early church held for 400 years until Augustine comes. So you've got John, you've got Peter, you've got Paul and so forth. They're all teaching the apostles, uh, the, the disciples. For, for 300 years they had this one common understanding, 350 at least, closer to 400 by the time Augustine started writing. 400 years, they, they were taught you can fall away. They were taught that God foreknew you, that God loved you, but he foreknew you, that he had foreknowledge, uh, but you, he didn't determine who's going to be saved or not. For 400 years, along comes uh, Augustine, as sincere as he may have been, and he comes up with this uh, rationale as to who God will save. So, and then for a thousand years after uh, uh, Augustine, they believe the same thing until Calvin came. That's the end. So I, I, I must have rushed through it as well for the sake of time, and I know that there's no air here, and we're feeling a bit sleepy now, but uh, I'm willing to stay behind. If you have any questions, uh, comments, I'm uh, more than happy to be here. Any questions, comments for... Yeah. Um, why is it that I hear ministers in the church, you know, even when we start praying for unbelievers, why is it that we, I hear them pray like they're Calvinists for other people's salvation? Like, God, I pray that you would, you know, just make this person see, give him faith, give them repentance, grant them this, grant them that. When really, in retrospect, God is saying, well, I've done all I can do, I've extended my grace. I can't do anything else. He has to accept it. Well, well, let me ask another question. If the Father knows that we need food and clothing, why would we pray for him? Well, we know that God is going to provide. But then why pray for him? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you why. Because we attribute everything to God. The reason we pray for our food, our clothing, is because we acknowledge God as the one that is able to give it. And the one that we can thank when he gives it to us. So when we pray for someone's eyes to be opened, I pray that. Okay? I pray that. I pray for my daughter. I pray, God, please open her eyes. Please help her see that she needs to make right with you. Well, we don't believe that God can do that, right? We don't believe that God can intervene. We believe. We do believe. We that believe. God can intervene. He can, but... No, no, but we... No, no, but... But we, we, we believe that he's able to enable them. In other words, that he's given this prevenient grace. But we also believe that God can use situations to help open their eyes. Such as Paul. Paul on his way to Damascus. Right? Beating the Christians, sending them to jail, killing them. Right? Meets Christ. Right? What did he say to Agrippa? 
I wasn't disobedient to the vision. Okay. And you have car accidents, you have financial crises, your mother dies, something where God uses that, like we talked about in, in, um, in Romans 9 today, when God uses people, individuals, uh, groups, when He uses events to, in His grace, in His grace to say, wake up. Look what's, ha- look what's happening around you. right? And in so doing, then you start focusing. Hey, you get your attention away from you, your, your, your iPads and your iPhones we heard last night. And you start focusing. Why is it that when people are separated, they, you know, from, from society, they have more time to think? The devil is here to do this, to, to, to well, what's the, what's the, um, distract us, right? Which lesson is that in this week's uh, Sunday, right? Today? So, but when, when things like that happen to us, to our brethren, to our children, then the kids say, oh, how many testimonies have you heard at camp, right? Then we heard it last, uh, last year with Adam, right? Uh, how he came to God, right? Car crashes, the, the Bolivians go, right? When things like that, people are shaken up. Agrippa was trembling, Felix was trembling when Paul gave him the word, but he still chose not to. So, even Calvinists, I'll I'll flip the the question, even Calvinists preach to the unelect. Because that that question is asked to Calvinists. They say, well, if you believe everyone's going to be saved, why do you even preach? Because God commands it. And even Calvinists will pray for everyone, because they don't know who's who's elect. So, uh, you've got to look at the both, both sides. It's just it's sad that some people don't ever get that car accident, or some people just aren't born in Christian families, and some people don't have that same opportunities. Right. But think of not having any opportunity, period, because you have been consigned to eternal hell. To me, that is a far more, far more worse uh, situation. It's not the nature of God. Just. I guess in a little bit of an answer that Judas Iscariot had the same opportunity as the disciples. And, mm-hmm. and one could challenge and say, why didn't he believe in Christ? Why did he uh, you know, kill himself or you know, mm-hmm. deny Christ and then walk away? He had the same opportunity. He wasn't provided anything less or more, and, and he chose the other way. And so I think there's that question comes up a lot in, in, in the debate between Calvinism and, and Arminianism. Speaking of Judas, um, Jesus said to the 12 disciples in John chapter 15, actually, he says, you have not chosen me, I've chosen you. But for what? He says, I've chosen you to bring forth much fruit. I've ordained you to bring forth much fruit. And, 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 uh, and uh, Judas fell away. He didn't bring much fruit. He brought pretty bad fruit. But he chose him. Judas was chosen. So, I mean, there are a lot of uh, what-if situations and scenarios. There's a lot. We can't, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, if you want to go into this logic, okay, is uh, many people say, how can you, as a child of God, if you have the Spirit in you, how can you now fall away if you are a child? Right? You have a, you're, a, you're a divine nature. You have a different nature. Um, I ask myself, how could Lucifer be in heaven? Satan be in heaven? Pristine, 
No evil, no sin. And how could he fall away? Where does sin come from? That's a mystery to me. You know, it says, if you read Ezekiel 28, I believe he's speaking about him. He talks about that, that when he thought within himself, it comes from rationalization. Sin comes from when you start rationalizing this logic. Instead of just saying what, instead of just obeying what the word of God says, I can rationalize anything away. If you're, good, if you're a good lawyer and a good accountant and a good salesman, you can talk anyone into anything. But we can't answer a lot of these deep questions. But what we can say is, this is what the Word of God says. And I'd be very, very um, apprehensive of teaching other people that you know that God has chosen you, or God has not chosen, we don't know who they are, but God has not chosen individuals to go against any of the wishes or desires or anything like that. Somebody had a question. I was just going to add on to that. I think you kind of covered that adequately with Augustine. A lot of this doctrine came from one man who I personally think had a lot of good things in his life that you can read about, but mm. just one false piece of doctrine grew into something completely, I mean, separate from what the truth was. And, I mean, you see where that went. Yeah, the, you know, I don't want to... We can talk a lot about people's uh, characters and past. I mean, you can talk about Calvin, and as much as people try to um, embellish, you know, or, or, or diminish some of his things, but Calvin was responsible for a lot of deaths. I don't care who you, you know, you read it. People say, oh, no, that's not. No, no he did. He actually had Servetus executed because he opposed him on the Trinity and infant baptism. Michael Servetus was a Christian. He had him executed. And there's recorded some of the things he said about it. There were, I mean, I question when someone has that view of God's love, how he can now interpret the meaning of election and predestination when he has that view for the sanctity of life. Calvin was often quoted by other theologians as he's an Old Testament theologian. So he, everything that he looked at, he, he filtered through the Old Testament in terms of the law. And he was the mayor, almost like the mayor of Geneva. And so I question how he understood how God's love demonstrated his sovereignty because of what he did. Now, I'm not tainting everyone with that, but, uh, but the fact that he, he sort of promoted this and now it's become a presupposition in, every, in, in many people's minds. I question that. I'm, I'm not going to judge him for it. Well, no, I mean, like the bottom line is when you try to rationalize things in a, you know, in a carnal way, that's what you get. <clears throat> that's the... and, and somebody made a comment this morning uh, about, you know, why do people believe uh, this predestination election? Is it just to, because they, they can get away with lots of sin? No. No. They're very devout. There's a very devout people that believe in this form of Predestination. You find some things, I believe, somebody sent me a whole lot of uh, quotations from uh, Samuel Froelich on, on some of his views of election. But he believed in, he, he believed in, uh, I believe it can fall away. It's very definite. So we have to be very careful where we put people in boxes and why they did what. But I, I, I really believe there wouldn't be any necess necessity for discussions like this if people were not being pulled away to do things that they think it allows them to do.
And the question that was raised this morning, that there's all these other preachers who are out there that are preaching these things, and how come we're not preaching it? And if, and if we don't have a defense for it, that means it's not defensible. So they go there. And that's why I'm saying we need to talk more about this. We shouldn't be afraid of talking about God's election. We are elect. Not to be proud of. We are chosen. Some people are afraid to call themselves saints. Oh, don't call me saint. That's what Peter, uh, Paul called, told them. All the saints at Philippi. And all the saints at whatever, right? Called to be saints, right? Don't be afraid of that. God wants you to be a sanctified person. But our association is with stained glass windows in, in the Catholic Church, you know. Right? So I'm going to say, let's take ownership of the Word of God. Don't give it over just the cameras. I'd like to thank you for this forum. I think it's really important. I've had conversations. Actually, I had one that was a three-hour conversation, and we literally went round and round mm -hmm. until I finally realized what a brother said, and I believe I'm not going to name the brother because I mm -hmm. can't remember. Um, he said that people will defend because they have to. When you get to the end of the conversation, when you get to the end of the discussion, they have to believe what they're defending. For someone's sake, mm -hmm. for their own sake, for someone they love, yeah. Um, and that predestination election conversation always goes to mm. eternal security. I mean, it just, it's natural. It's a natural mm. progression of that discussion. Right. And so I thank you. There's one statement that you made that I think we all need to pause when we hear it. And that is, when we hear, and I heard this as a young sister, and it shocked me. And then I had to, I wrestled with it in my mind until it made sense. When someone says they weren't saved to begin with, to make that statement is, could be, and I'm not saying, but it could be blasphemy. How are you saying that the power of God that worked in this person, and, and it was written on the top, at that time was it working? Was it God or was it Satan? So, so when you hear that safe statement, don't take it like pause and, and try to teach that because it is really serious. For some, that may be because they feel that they've messed up their life so much. It's easier to start from scratch, right? I'd be very careful in that, in that area because it's easy to say, well, I just get baptized again, start from scratch, right? I would encourage repentance for sure, for sure. But this is not, you know, control or delete, you can reset, right? Repentance is, is the way to get back to God, not by denial of your past, right? We know that the Word of God teaches us that God is looking on a heart. Mm -hmm. And then Christ said, no one can come unto me except God draws him mm -hmm. through me. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible also said... Those who blaspheme on the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. how did someone can blaspheme on the Holy Spirit when he never possessed that? Right. And those who do that, even other things, in the Bible also in Revelation, it says that God, God will blood our name out of the book of life. Mm -hmm. So there is, again, to come back to that, it is our own free will. 
we, we believe God or not. God gave to Adam too and a big choice. You want to eat of that fruit or you don't want to eat of that fruit. Right. So we should have that in our heart that really it is up to us if we want. But if we, God chose us to do that and we realize that he chose us, we should be happy and why should we look them back? Right. Right. And then also said in, in this first uh, John, I believe, and it says, those who are sinning, they never knew God. Mm. He doesn't talk that for the unbelievers. He does that for the believers. Because to the unbelievers, it doesn't matter. They don't even believe there is a sin. Mm. Okay? So he spoke that to the believers. Those who are sinning, they never knew God. I believe, not like it used to be said, Christians are not sinning. Mm -hmm. Okay? Christians can fall into a sin. Mm -hmm. right. Unwilling. And if I would compare that earthly way, do I like to, you, do you like to fall on a concrete? No, you don't. And we are all caring for not to fall. But it happened. Mm -hmm. Well, these things can happen in our life too. That we can fall into the sin. But those who are sinning willingly, there is no remission for it. Well, that's what Hebrews 10 says. Now, you just brought up a good point. Romans 8, if you go through Romans 8, you're saved. You're walking now according to the law of righteousness, right? No longer according to the law of the latter. It says, if you live after the flesh, what's going to happen? You shall die, right? If you live after the flesh, you shall die. What does that mean? If you die, you're alive. You have to be alive. You can't die and be be dead and die, right? So I believe Romans says what is what is speaking to me. If you if you are living, if you a lot of these verses when you we don't read the original Greeks, and I'm not saying you need to know the original Greek to know it all, but in the original Greek you see a lot of these present tense verbs they they are continuous. If you are sinning. That's why I believe Hebrews 10.26 says, he that is sinning willfully, not sin once, but he that is sinning willfully, you go back into sin. You go back into sin. And that's why John, 1 John 3 says, he that is born of God cannot sin. Well, that's not true. Because he just finished saying, if any man sins, we have an advocate. So what he's saying, he that is born of God cannot be sinning. You can't go back into sin. Because sin has no dominion over you. So... We have to be very careful. We just take it by face value and say, this is what it means. In, in our vernacular, in our grammar, because it, it's different how or the intention was different when it was written. I look at that, many would say, you know, well, we are lucky because we've been uh, raised in a Christian family. Well, look at this, what happened in Europe when the faith started to spread from one country to the other. Those were not from the believing families. Mm -hmm. And yet God looked on the heart. This is what I believe. And he chose them to follow. And look at how many people convert that time. You know. And now what is it? Always less and less. See, now we're getting into areas. This is the mind of God. But what he's given to us, we can understand. We're getting into areas now saying, what about the person in Burma? Oh, is there such a country today, Burma? It's another name now, right? In the jungles of Burma, right? What's it called? Yeah, yeah, me my Yeah, yeah. What about them that never heard the God or the Incas or whatever? The, you know, uh, I do what I what I do cling to in that one is Romans two, where it says, you know, 
for even though they don't have the law, they're a law unto themselves. And their conscience accuses or excuses them. And God will, will, will judge them according to the light he has already given to them. Okay? So that's all I'm going to go, because we can go into real philosophy here, and we don't want to do that. Um, any more questions on election and predestination than we talked about? I would say you were talking about someone being dead, and you're talking about Romans 8, but you didn't quote the first verse, there is therefore now. No, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus that walk after the Spirit, right? Not after the flesh. Yes. Um, I was once, when I first started studying this 20 years ago, they said, uh, some author said that this is, you know, predestination and election is really a hypothetical, it's a hypothetical uh, doctrine because it doesn't, have, it doesn't have a lot of practical application. And that can be true in the sense that... What did that person believe God ever did? Hmm? Did they believe that God ever did have pra practical application? Well, I'm just saying that what he's saying is, what he's saying is, is that whatever God knows about how he chose us, it doesn't, shouldn't matter to us, but what should matter to us is what he commanded us to do. And okay, and just because you are elect one way or the other, it doesn't excuse you to sin. Because that's what he's going to judge you for. He's not going to judge you for some misunderstandings you may have about the scriptures, we have all misunderstandings, but he's going to judge you for what we said it this morning. He will judge every man according to his works. Every man according to his works. And that's what he's going to judge us for. Whether we worship Christ or not. Whether we sinned or not. Right? And then we can go throughout many more examples. But... I wonder, uh, this is my question, actually, more than answer. Isn't the predestination more for doing God's work? Well, we gave definitions. I don't think predestination is for salvation. I think it's for God's well, work. Yeah, that was that was a crux. When, of, yeah, when we, when we look, even apostles, when he chose, they were pre predestined for that yeah. work. Right, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, God, God has to. But it's not just work. It's it's work on you as well, right. and work on me. Right. We we've been chosen to become holy, unblameable to become conformed to the image of Christ. None of us are conformed to the image of Christ when we're first born. In the sense that we need to be shaped and fitted, right? You know, on a long road on earth, we change. We change. We become usually more humble, going through life's experiences, going through the exercises and the teachings and the discipline of the Father when he chastens us. We usually become more understanding the other side. We, we don't become so jumpy at people, impatient and so forth. So uh, we, we learn that what it really means to serve him, right? The sacrificial service that we give him, not just come to church on Sunday. How we can serve him. What, he had, what ministry he has given us to. I don't know if anyone here has discovered the, the ministry that God has given you. That is part of predestination, I believe. When we are conformed to the image of his son, and his son did all kinds of ministries, healing, preaching, teaching, right? Faith, miracles. And he's given each one of us a different ministry. And we've got to be formed into that member on his body. And sometimes it, it's painful. 
And that's what Romans is all about, this painful existence on earth in becoming conformed to his image. And in all of that, we're not to lose hope. We're not to give up. But this is all God's plan on shaping us into the kind of person that will love him with a free heart, with a free will. We love him because of who he is and not what he can do for us, who he is, because he first loved us.